when you are giving a talk direct to camera, you are looking into the lens as if the lens is your best friend or the lens is your audience. Hey, TEDx organizers, this is Jay Harati, and you're listening to Solving for X. Today, I'm here with Angela Cheng. She's the creative director of format development at TED. For the last few years, Angela has been working to reimagine the TED Talk. She's been taking the speakers off the stage and putting them in all sorts of places, in their living room, in the woods, and even underwater. Now, of course, as you can imagine, during the recent pandemic, the expertise of Angela and her team has become incredibly valuable to help TED produce nearly 100 remote talks for virtual TED 2020. Angela is here with us today to share what she's learned, and she's going to tell us how great remote production and curation choices can lead to an enriched and imaginative TED Talk. This is a new frontier, and it may or may not be right for you as a TEDx organizer. But either way, I know you're going to find this fascinating. So let's dive right in and enjoy. Angela, welcome to Solving for X. Hi, Jay. Thanks so much for having me. It's wonderful to have you. I'm really excited to talk about this new frontier in the world of TED. How long have you been doing this? What is exactly format development? What does it mean here at TED? Yeah, so I've actually been at TED for a long time. I've been at TED since 2008, and I was originally on the video production team. So I'm really familiar with working with speakers on stage and figuring out how many camera angles and how to make sure that the lighting and the sound sounds good. But in 2015, we were working with a speaker who had terrible stage fright. Um, and because of that, we decided to re-record him by taking him off the stage. And because he was a scuba diver, we happened to be actually near the ocean. So we took him to the ocean and had him give the talk directly in the ocean. And because of that, Chris Anderson got excited about the idea of us exploring how we might be able to share ideas off the stage and so the team format development was born, and our mandate is simply to figure out new ways to share ideas that are not TED Talks on stage, but the backdrop could be a studio, um, somebody's office, or a laboratory, for instance. Mm -hmm. In the pre-COVID world, when did it make sense for you to think about a talk as something you would do off stage? You mentioned stage fright is one of them. We know it's yes. real, but what, what were other reasons to do something in a non-stage format? Yeah. I, I mean, another example is a series that we ended up uh, creating called DIY Neuroscience, which is with um, a TED fellow named Greg Gage, who is a neuroscientist who does these really whimsical but super smart science experiments that are very inexpensive and very you know, DIY. And so we found that the direct-to-camera format was actually very well suited for things like experiments, for instance, because sometimes an experiment would go wrong or right, something right, like that, right. and we can refilm it, and we can get like close-up close-ups in a way mm. that you sometimes can't do on stage. Um, and we can just help with pacing because sometimes it's, it's really hard to try to explain something and try to demo something at the same time. I think that demos on stage are still like wonderful and great because you have an audience there 
to help validate that the demo is actually happening. But um, sometimes because of the intricacies of science experiments, it's really nice to be able to have that kind of setup. In many ways, it's a little bit like a cooking show, right? But it's like a science cooking show. Um, And then we did another series called Small Thing, Big Idea, which is all about designs that have changed the world, kind of like everyday objects that you don't think of that actually have a design principle behind it, such as stairs or chopsticks or even the pasta. And we chose that because it's so inherently visual and you can lovingly photograph these objects in a way that people haven't seen before. You know, we're, we're all used to looking at pasta. Uh, we eat pasta every day, but there's a way that you can photograph pasta that makes it extremely artful um, and make it like the main character. And I think it's experiments like that that really got us excited mm. about trying out new ways of storytelling and sharing ideas. Interesting. In, in some ways, I guess, if you gave a talk about the design of pasta shapes on the stage, the speaker is front and center and the slides are kind of behind them in the back, you know, exactly. and, now, and now you basically flipped it. You can, you can bring the slides closer and make them front and center. Um, That's true. Yeah. All right. But why don't we move on, Angela, and kind of bring ourselves back to 2020. So I know you've been at this for like five years and here we are suddenly we find ourselves in this strange new reality. Maybe you can first describe what TED 2020 was all about. What was your role in it? And then I kind of want to talk about how your definition of new formats have evolved given this new reality. So I think, you know, 2020, we obviously had gone in with optimistic and hopeful intentions to hold it in in conference at Vancouver. But obviously, since COVID struck, we had to pivot very quickly. um, And we realized that uh, we did not want to not have a conference um, because the ideas seemed more urgent than ever. And so the big plan was to have eight weeks worth of virtual programming. The speakers who were supposed to come to Vancouver instead pivoted to filming their talks in their homes. And because of some of the work that I'd done with these direct-to-camera talks, I had a little bit of experience with working with speakers, not remotely, but um, working with speakers who had to speak directly to a camera. And so I worked to help direct both creatively as well as to work with the speakers to give their talks to their laptops, to their phones, or sometimes we did send them web cameras as well or professional cameras, depending on their technical capabilities. And it was kind of an adventure. Mm -hmm. So tell us about this adventure. What worked, what didn't? I did go in knowing that we think that speaking on stage to a live audience can be daunting and intimidating, and it is. But being at home or even in a studio and speaking directly to a camera can be equally as vulnerable, if not more. So I already went in knowing that speakers sometimes would feel, even if they were great speakers on stage, that it might take a moment for them to get used to speaking to a camera because they're speaking to a machine. But Added to that, there's the complexity of them having to do it at home where there's actually nobody in the room with them. And there's a bunch of us staring at them through like a Zoom window. It becomes actually extremely vulnerable. So the one thing that I learned is to just account for that. 
to know that it's just as vulnerable for speakers to be speaking within the comforts of their own home. Usually, typically, the first time they do the entire talk, it's very awkward or it can be very awkward and they stumble because they're not used to talking to a machine. Like knowing that already, I think is very useful. And sometimes even telling them that they might feel awkward helps give them permission to be awkward. Usually once they get that awkwardness out, then it helps ease the next take. Because that's the other thing is obviously with these direct-to-camera talks, you can do more than one take. If you stumble, you can go back and do it again because it does get edited. It becomes comforting, but it also actually still makes them feel like they're on display a little bit. So yeah, it's, like- it's, it's, it's so interesting. It's a little bit kind of a surprising contradiction because the immediate instinct is to go, oh, it's so much easier because you don't have to go on stage and you don't have that fear of public speaking in front of the audience. But it turns out that having to prepare for a conference is actually a great motivation to prepare, yes. your adrenaline is going, you get it, and then you come and you deliver it. And afterwards, you want to drop dead, but you you only <laughs> had one shot. You only had one shot. And, yes. And you had to get that right. I find it so frustrating now. If I have to record at home, I, I guarantee I have to record something three times because the first one, I'm like too sleepy, and the second one is not, not right. It's true. But how do you get them to be on their best game without the fear of the stage as a yes. motivator? Yeah. I mean, so it's been hard. I mean, there've been a few speakers where we ended up, I want to say there was one speaker in particular, we ended up spending about seven hours with her uh, during her filming because uh, it was so daunting for her to deliver the talk. I want to add too, that sometimes, you know, when you're standing in front of people, even if you're very nervous, that crowd is so warm And when you're speaking, they're giving you feedback and you're feeding off of their energy and you don't have that luxury when you're doing these talks in a studio or specifically, particularly at home. One easy trick is to have them take it paragraph by paragraph. You can't have them take it sentence by sentence. I mean, you can, but that's an awful lot of editing. But we have them just say, look, we know that you tried your best to learn your talk they've usually tried to memorize it or at least get familiar with it section by section. And so you allow them to take it section by section and you don't move on until they feel good about the section. Can you give an example of a maybe one of your favorite offstage talks that you recorded for TED 2020 where something really worked? Yeah, so I think that one of my favorite talks from Virtual TED is a talk by Dallas Taylor, who is a podcast host for a show called 20,000 Hertz, which deals with the world of sound and the intentional designs behind sound and why sound matters and is so important to us. John Cage visited an anechoic chamber at Harvard University. Anechoic chambers are rooms that are acoustically treated to minimize sound to almost zero. There are no sounds in these rooms, so John Cage didn't expect to hear anything at all. But he actually heard his own blood circulating. I think what really worked about that talk was, A, Dallas already knows how to speak directly to a digital audience. Because of his work as a podcaster, he knows how to modulate his voice so that he's speaking very intimately 
when you're a speaker on stage, there is intimacy there because people are there, but you also do have to, you know, emote. There's a different art form to emoting and speaking directly to a camera or directly into a microphone, knowing that the audience on the other end is an online audience. And he already knew that. So there was very little we needed to do in terms of coaching him and delivery. But he also already thought through the visuals and the graphics and thought through deeply about what the sounds would would sound like. So in many ways, the reason why I think it worked so well was because it was intended for an online audience already. It was not simply a talk that was meant to be on stage. It was a talk that, to me, was meant to be a direct-to-camera format. So if I'm a TEDx organizer and I'm planning a conference for 2021 and I know that I might have room in my lineup just kind of to mix things up, to create one or two talks that are pre-recorded because I think that that idea will come across better that way. What kind of ideas do you think they should be thinking about for this format? Talks that are inherently visual. You already have a, you know, the, that's why design talks or artist talks, for instance, work really well. Or speakers who already have a sense of what the visuals might be that's super helpful for a direct-to-camera talk. Talks that tend to run a little bit shorter is also useful um, just because direct-to-camera talks, you can only have so many angles. It's, it's not like a talk on stage where you can have three plus cameras. You know, if you have too many angles, it starts feeling distracting, um, all the cutting. And so the shorter it is, the less you have to deal with people on the other end feeling fatigued by just seeing the same shot over and over again. And then I do think that there's a particular kind of speaker who's ideal for direct-to-camera. They usually speak a little bit faster. They're comfortable in front of the camera. And what, what I like about this possibility, sometimes the speaker might say, oh, that sounds much better. I think I'm going to be more comfortable this way. Another time, they would be like, I cannot travel to Bratislava yes. because I live in New York and I know I could get on a plane, but I don't have time. You know, as a TEDx organizer, you can say, what do you think about an offstage talk direct to camera? And right. that kind of opens up that possibility. Angela, let me ask you about creativity. I, yes. I, I watched the TED Talks um, from TED 2020 and many of them I was just like, wow, they were so beautiful, so creative, so unexpected. I was delighted to share a few of them with TEDx organizers when we did the TEDx live premiere event. And I was very proud. Mm-hmm. How do you get your team to be creative? How much do you collaborate with the speaker about their ideas? What was so gratifying actually about virtual TED was the ability that we had to collaborate with the speaker, ask them their thoughts. The very first thing we always did when we were speaking to the speaker was, do you already have a space in your house in mind? Is there a place that you think the talk really makes sense? And more often than not, the speakers had real ideas about where they thought they should be delivering the talks. And what's so cool about that, it really showcased their personalities. Tom Karnak, for instance, wanted to give a talk in the woods because his talk was about sustainability and the environment. These woods have always inspired me. And as humanity now tries to think, about how we can find the inspiration to retake control of our actions so that terrible things don't come down the road without us taking action to avert them. I thought this is a good place. 
for us to talk. And it was completely appropriate for him to give a talk in the woods. You don't really get to do that on stage. So I would say that creativity in that case is really born from conversation. It really is about understanding the speaker's talk, what their goal is for the talk, and then speaking to them and figuring out the best way to express their ideas. Um, Titus Kafar, the visual artist, shared his idea from his art studio and because of that was able to showcase a lot of his work directly. This most recent body of work is called From a Tropical Space. This series of paintings is about Black mothers. The series of paintings takes place in a super saturated, maybe surrealist world, not that far from the one we live in. It sort of felt like we were doing a studio visit. So even though some folks were limited to the environments because of COVID, you can see the potential for when the pandemic is over for how where you give your talk feels very relevant to the topic that you're trying to talk about. Hmm. The famous quote, uh, the whole world is a stage. Yes. <laughs> that really becomes the reality once we can all leave our homes comfortably. Mm-hmm. Um So that all makes sense to me. You described the recording, uh, Mm -hmm. but if you take a step back, I want you to give TEDx organizers who are thinking they might be doing this, can you give them the full picture of like the process from A to Z, so to speak? Because there must be some pre-production, there must be some post-production. I think a lot of us really understand what it takes to put a talk on stage. Mm-hmm. but we maybe don't know what it takes to do a talk off stage. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's actually so much preparation that goes into something like this. So assuming that the speaker already has the talk written, um, it's always important to do a pre-call with them where you have them go through the talk to just assess how well they know the talk and to prepare them if in case they don't know the talk well enough, just to make sure that they practice enough. Um, but during that call, you're also doing a location scout in their homes or in whatever environment you've decided to film in to pick the best corner or the best room to film. And not only are you assessing you know, what room looks best, you're also assessing which room sounds the best because, the, you know, some people's rooms don't have carpeting, for instance, and it ends up sounding echoey. During that call, you're also talking about technical aspects, like um, what kind of camera the speaker has, or if the space is open enough, we've also sometimes sent filmmakers to the person's house to film the person provided that they're safe and it's social distance and all that type of stuff. So a lot of it is working out the technical questions. If they have a camera, if they don't have a camera, whether you should send them a camera. If they don't have anything but a laptop camera, that's perfectly fine as well. You just want to make sure that it sounds and looks good. It also does require some curation of the room and designing of the room, which basically means that The background doesn't need to be fancy, but it shouldn't also be just a white backdrop. Um, Ideally, it's not just a white wall. Um, There's a little bit of the personality of the speaker on the wall and behind them. Um, You know, we've seen a lot of Zoom meetings now where people curate their bookshelf. There's a reason why they do it. They want to make sure that there's something behind them that looks good and represents who they are. 
um, it, it, you know, things like having them purchase a plant or even sending them some flowers and plants to put back there is really useful. Um, and also another thing to consider when you're talking about which room to film them in, um, having a window near them is nice as long as they're not backlit. So th that's like really the pre-call. There's a lot involved in it, um, but it really is just making sure that, you know, when you are ready to film, you know all the elements that are taking place. And I would say that that's a separate call on a separate day because that first pre-call can be pretty exhausting. Once you sort of figure out the plan, then a few days later, you'll sit down and actually record with the speaker. We often use some kind of video conferencing, you know, like BlueJeans or Zoom or Google Hangout in order to remote in so we can watch the speaker as they're giving their talk so that we can give them encouragement and some direction while they're delivering the talk. And then from there, we record the talk. What are the visual elements that are actually essential for enhancing the idea and, and kind of making the talk more compelling for the viewer beyond the kind of, I want to make sure people think I live in a nice place. <laughs> How to think about the design elements. Yeah. So it really depends on the space, but whatever you do, if you can get some space between you and the background. So in other words, you know, if there's no choice, then having a bookshelf right behind you is fine. But if the bookshelf can be at least six feet behind you, it just gives a little bit more distance and allows the camera to focus on you and not the bookshelf. That's one thing I would say. Um, it's nice to have a light source. To me, if nothing else, having a window with sunlight come in is great. If the sunlight is too harsh, if it's direct sunlight, that can be very distracting. So Ideally, it's indirect sunlight, but it's sunlight. And the window is not right behind you, but it's either lighting you from the front or from the side. And then the other really important thing is sound. So if the room is too big and echoey, sound becomes a real problem. What you want is, is a room that's quiet um, and isn't too echoey and has stuff in there to absorb the sound. And if you can't, even though it doesn't look as good, having headphones to speak is useful or having some kind of lapel mic that connects to your computer or your phone is really helpful as well, just because it's getting sound that's much more intimate and isn't directly from the computer, you know, the computer microphone, which isn't always the best. I would say those are kind of the basic elements. And then the thing that is really great and luxurious is if you can plan ahead of time what the graphics are. You know, just making sure that the speaker's visuals, if they do have visuals, which is always useful, is nice looking or a little bit designed so that they feel compelling for video. Can you think of an example of visuals that really worked and were beautiful and maybe something where you said, mm, no? <laughs> well, I mean... I kind of think that the rules that apply to speakers for visuals on stage are kind of the same rules that apply for speakers direct to camera. They should be compelling. If they can, they should be clean and clear. 
you know, Ted always tries to stay away from graphs, for instance. I think the same thing applies to direct-to-camera talks. And, you know, for the most part, if you can get them designed by a designer, it's really useful. Which were your favorite from TED 2020? Um, I mean, Jad Abumrad's talk. Uh, oh, I forgot. Photographs, right? Photographs are always so compelling. Right. Um, and Jad Abumrad's had a real mixed media of photography and visual collage and just gorgeous illustrations. Uh, typically, we think of ourselves as these autonomous units. I do something to you, you do something to me. But according to this theory, when two people come together and really commit to seeing each other, in that mutual act of recognition, they actually make something new, a new entity that is their relationship. I mean, I think that animation always goes a long way, mm. but again, that's dependent on bandwidth and resources. Mm. But you really can't go wrong with photographs. They can fill the screen, you know, especially if it's historical. I think historical photographs are always really compelling to look at. One of my last questions is to kind of get a reality check on how hard or how easy it is <laughs> to, to do. Because when I listen to you, Angela, I recognize a lot of the elements of what it takes to produce a great TED Talk on stage. But I did hear that it can be twice as hard <laughs> to do this. If you set up the stage, you set up camera lighting, audio, you do it once and 10 different people get up one after the other and it's done. Is it twice as hard? What are the words of caution for TEDxers? Because I, I think that if they're going to do it, I'd like them to do it knowing what they're getting into with their eyes open and not being unpleasantly surprised by the workload. Do you have any words on, of wisdom on that? Yeah, I think that it can be twice as hard because it's unfamiliar. But on the other hand, it can be lovely because if a speaker messes up, they can do it over again and you have a little bit of control about the pacing, right? So again, that's kind of speaker dependent. I would say that if a TEDxer wanted to try to do a bunch of these, it makes sense 100% to try to do one first, just as a test, to see what they're getting themselves into. And then similarly, if you're a TEDxer who is used to working with a production company to do the staging, it's worth also finding a filmmaker who is an expert to, to consult with. Because the filmmaker will just be able to bring a level of expertise and knowing that then you don't need to worry about it. And it can free you up to work closely with the speaker instead of having to work out the technical stuff. So harder because it's new, but obviously a skill that you can build up. And, and I know you speak of the rewards. Uh, one of the things you've mentioned to me before is the intimacy of the talk is kind of uh, a big reward of the direct-to-camera. You want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I think that uh, for certain people, you know, when you are giving a talk direct-to-camera, you are looking into the lens as if the lens is your best friend or the lens is your audience. And a great talk can connect that way. It doesn't matter if they're on stage. A great talk can speak directly to the camera and speak directly to the online audience. Again, I'll, I'll bring up, I think Jad Abenrod's talk from 2020 has that effect. It really feels like he's speaking to us at home. And I think that that is super rewarding. 
um, and really allows you to feel like you're connecting to that speaker and to that speaker's personality. I mean, I, I really do think that the future of TED is still going to be TED conferences in person, but I bet we're also going to see tons of different ways of expressing ideas that aren't just on stage, but are directly to the camera. I agree with you. I hope that, you know, out of a crisis comes an opportunity and innovation. So we're really hoping some of these creative pieces of work are here to stay. What are you thinking for your group? You know, we don't know when this is over, but whenever it's over, what are you thinking for your kind of group and format innovation? Do you have any ideas or things you're looking forward to be doing? Yeah, I mean, I think more and more we're just thinking about this lifelong learner kind of question where a lot of our TED digital audience, they're just hungry to learn about everything about everything. And so what can we do to create series that are focused for these lifelong learners? If you want to lo- know everything about philosophy, how do we package something that feels like it's part of something that you can I hate to use the word binge, but you can just go from episode to episode and feel like you're really getting the full spectrum of all the perspectives and the ideas around this particular subject. And I do think that format development is a great way for us to experiment with something like that. Um, but I also think that beyond the talk, you know, we've been talking a lot about debate and about civil debate um, and, and discussion around hard topics. I think that's something that our team is really wanting and hungering to try out for this coming year. You know, we're seeing the world as more fragmented and fractured, and I think there's a way for us to bridge ideas and connect people, even if they're on opposite ends of a belief system. How do we foster that kind of conversation and discussion through TED? What are the levers that we can pull to try to cultivate that stuff? So that it's ideas and tension, you know, how do we create a platform for people to express that stuff? I think that's kind of what's on the horizon. I think we'll probably use video and audio and everything at our disposal to try to figure that out. So I'm really excited about that. Beautiful, beautiful. And yes, please, on that last piece about uh, getting people to have civilized debate, I am excited about that too. You know, it makes me think of, I know we tried to do that at TED a couple of years ago. And once you put people on stage, they just want to talk they want to get their points across. There's, there isn't that much culture of debate. But I wonder if this format is actually quite conducive to going back and saying, actually, that was not really a debate. <laughs> that, right. was, that was trying to convince somebody of your point as opposed to trying to listen to them. So uh, that, that sounds really exciting. Thank you, Angela, for venturing out to this new world and innovating both the mission of educating people uh, with new knowledge and, and helping find new ways for people to connect and and have conversations. Those are great things. You have been a wonderful friend to the TEDx community for a long, long time. I know you've been coming and sharing wisdom with our community, even in your previous job when you were uh, setting things up for the stage. So uh, on behalf of everyone in our community, thank you for always and thank you for today and uh, wishing you best of luck. Thank you, Jay. I'm so pleased to be here and I'm so inspired by the TEDx community. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Solving for X. Let's continue the conversation on the TEDx Hub where you'll find additional resources on this topic. And when you're there, 
You can also share your insights or ask questions. This episode was produced with love by Bianca de Jesus, recorded by Taylor Stemley, and researched by Ilya Raza. This episode was edited by Mickey Kapper. If you haven't done so already, subscribe to the Solving for X channel wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. And of course, on the TEDx Hub. Thank you for listening to Solving for X, and we'll see you next time. Bye.